0: Today's episode is sponsored by Art of the Trek. One of the common questions I get asked from backpackers is how to better plan for a backpacking trip, and often it consists of a lot of research and digging through maps to plan routes. Art of the Trek is an outdoor trip planning app that enables backpackers to research and plan successful adventures in one place. Art of the Trek allows you to plan your own custom trip, or you can ask them to plan a custom backpacking trip at no cost to you. I've used this service lately to plan a trip through Canyonlands National Park and was impressed by the level of detail provided in every aspect of planning a trip. They'll also help with securing permits and reservations or anything else you may need for your trip for free. So check them out over at artofthetrek.com. Take a moment and imagine what it's like to start a business from nothing and turn it into a thriving company in the outdoor industry. If you consider how big the outdoor industry is when you pull all the various arms into one bucket, you've got hiking, camping, backpacking, fishing, hunting, climbing, and so many more other activities within the outdoor industry. So introducing a new and innovative product into the market to me personally feels really daunting. Outdoor Vitals joined the outdoor industry as a direct-to-consumer business about four years ago or so and has been selling insulation for ground sleeping and for hammocks, and they've dabbled in backpack design, outerwear, and have a myriad of other products for sale for just about all of the products you would need for backpacking. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backpacking Experience podcast today. I'm stoked to share a great conversation with Tayson and Dave from Outdoor Vitals. Outdoor Vitals is a brand that I've kind of always followed through the past few years. And aside from personally owning and using a few of their products, what's intriguing to me is their willingness as a company to try new things and push the limits a little bit. Their product always seems to feature something a little bit different and unique that keeps them relevant in the market. And it's exciting to see a direct-to-consumer business like Outdoor Vitals be doing things that kind of push those limits and just kind of catch the eye a little bit more than some of the other generic things that are happening within the outdoor industry or just the backpacking uh, product market uh, currently. So our conversation today starts with just talking about how Dave and Tayson developed a passion for the outdoors in some of their favorite trips that they've been on. Then we get into a bunch of business talk and cover everything from why you would start a company to design and sell outdoor products, to what it is like to have a product manufactured overseas. I had a really good time chatting with these guys and appreciate the time both of them took to discuss outdoor vitals and just some of their personal experiences and lives with me as well. So moving things forward, let's jump into the conversation with Tayson and Dave from Outdoor Vitals. Well, everyone, I'm very excited to have my first episode with two guests on it. I've got Tayson and Dave from Outdoor Vitals here with me. What's going on, guys? Thanks for being on the podcast with me.
1: Thanks for having us. Yeah, glad to be here.
0: Yeah. So as we get into this, let's just start off super easy and have you guys introduce yourselves. Who are you and like, what's your background? Maybe what do you do for Outdoor Vitals? And then uh, any like, I don't know, just introduce yourselves. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So Taysen here speaking. And
1: so I founded Outer Vitals. Uh, This will be the sixth year, I guess, we're we're actually in business, but pretty humble beginnings. Um, But yeah, my background with with the outdoors and just kind of what I've done is I I grew up in a small town in Utah of about 7,000 people. Um never really knew it actually cuz all the surrounding towns were even smaller, so I was from the big city, you know. Um but just <laughs> nice. just spent a ton of time outdoors and really really developed a big passion for it. So my family, you know, we we'd ride four-wheelers and we did some we do some hiking and and things like that. We never really did backpacking with my family. Um, but we, uh, I was, I was a part of Boy Scouts and whatnot, and, and I got to dabble more in in the backpacking side a little bit with with Boy Scouts, and so that was kind of my initial upbringing with with the outdoors and with gear and, and things like that. Um, <clears throat> but uh, definitely it was like growing up with with not great gear. I mean, the best gear that I had was the best thing on on Walmart's shelf, and uh, not that that was you know the worst thing in the world, but um, just just that was kind of my background that was that was uh what i got to use that's and 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 then yeah it was just just a variety of different ways that i that i was exploring the 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 outdoors and then as i got into more college and whatnot i really got into more backpacking specifically and and then ultra backpacking so
2: and about myself um i've been at outdoor vitals about three years now um i do a lot of the customer support stuff shipping logistics things like that um I would say I got into the outdoors. I'm originally from Pennsylvania. I went to college in Philadelphia, but I grew up in northeastern PA. A oh, cool. A lot of outdoor stuff in the Pocono Mountains. So, grew up fishing, camping, stuff like that. Never really backpacked until maybe about 10 years ago. Um, and it was when I came out west and just – I don't know. It was like a whole nother world out here for me, um, coming to Utah and California and things like that. So that's really what piqued my interest in backpacking and backcountry activities. Um, so I'd say that's kind of how I, I got into it, just coming out here on vacation and fell in love with it and knew I wanted to move out West. And um, my background is more customer service-based. I worked for Marriott um, the hotel company for oh okay, cool for, for a while, that's what I originally went to school with was um, like tourism hospitality um, and then I kind of burned myself out with that, came out here, started working for an outfitter, um then started guiding running trips, things like that um, and then that lifestyle kind of didn't really mesh with being married and wanting to have a family stuff like that so um this was the perfect fit for me with you know my my love for recreation backpacking things like that and then my um more educational side of hospitality and customer service
0: nice so you said it was like a vacation that brought you out here from
2: originally yeah Uh, i came out did scion grand canyon death valley yosemite kind of just Came out here for that, and then I was like, Man, this is like another world. <laughs> it really was, I mean, especially just, you know, Zion. If you yeah. came to Zion, that's why I grew hard up with super green, you know, dense forest, things like that. Um, so and then just the lifestyle out west, and um, I, I would say just in the recreational side of things is definitely more laid back. I lived in Philadelphia for six, seven years, very, very different.
0: Yeah. I spent some time in like New Hampshire myself. So have a little bit of understanding of what the East coast is like and coming back to to Utah and just being here, it's a pretty special place.
2: Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's just, just different. I can't really explain it.
0: <laughs> yeah. So I'd be curious to to ask you this question. Both of you can answer this, but is there with your uh varied Like backgrounds and experience with backpacking, is there a a trip or a location that just stands out as like an epic backpacking trip or location that you've been? And why is it like on that epic status?
2: I mean, for, for me, I really enjoy the trips that my friends from the East Coast get to come back out here and kind of experienced the same thing I originally experienced when I came out here. So, um, one that I really sticks out for me was a couple years ago. A few of my friends from, um, Pennsylvania came out and we did the trans Zion So I think it's like 47 miles from, uh, one end of the park to the other. And we kind of did it leisurely, took our time, really enjoyed ourselves. Um, did it in the fall. The weather was perfect. And just being able to let my friends experience my love of the outdoors and Utah and things like that. So I would say that sticks out probably the most. Um, We do trips here at Outdoor Vitals once a year, at least that are bigger trips. And I think those are fun, good learning experience because the team kind of comes out of their shell a little bit and you get to know them more on a personal note. So I think those trips are really fun. We just went up to the Wind Rivers and and did a trip up there with the team. Yeah, was, that was awesome. So um, I was just going to different. say
0: I listened to that like podcast episode that you guys put out that's kind of like breaking down that trip and yeah, it sounded like it's pretty epic.
2: Yeah, it was, <laughs> the weather was was very interesting. Not really <laughs> what we expected, but I think that's part of, you know, backpacking and, and things like that. Um, but yeah, th- those, those company trips are really fun for learning and growing as a team.
1: Nice. Yeah. I think, I think I could second that personally. Um, I'm really drawn to high country and, and secluded areas uh, that just really kind of call to me. Um, <clears throat> I'd like, I mean, I, and I like to expand my horizons and do some more slot canyons and stuff this, this upcoming year, but I'm just really drawn to those, so yeah. I think as far as past trips, um, and to kind of relate to what I've heard you speak about on your podcast, is we definitely had like a, a really fun experience, a, a type two fun experience when we did a uh, Kings Peak. Uh, and that was the first <laughs> nice. bigger company trip we did. We just we did it really early, and there's just snow everywhere, and we had to navigate around the snow to get to the peak and. You know, wet, we had wet feet wet from, <laughs> from literally like the first step out of camp to, you know, getting back and getting your boots off. So just, It was, it was definitely a type two fun, but, um, was, was just a blast something I'll never forget for sure. And and then that kind of set us off on like, Hey, let's keep doing, you know, we, we try to do monthly trips at Outdoor Vitals, like at least overnighters. Um, and thankfully we have plenty of options where we live to do those. Um, but then we try to do like a, like a three night or, or something bigger, um, once a year, and, and that those are just a lot of fun. But yeah, that that Kings Peak trip was was pretty uh, pretty intense for for the situation. But
0: that particular trail, it's pretty interesting because it gets a ton of traffic. Maybe one of the highest trafficked like trails in the area, but it's still not easy, well, even with with how beat down it is, and I you're think not the, bushwhacking and all that.
2: The flip side for doing it when we did it early spring. I think we saw like two people.
1: Yeah.
2: Oh, so for real. Awesome.
1: Not, none, <laughs> nice. none summited the day we summited. Yeah. Zero. We saw one coming out when we were walking in and then one that summited the day before. And I don't even know if we saw those guys. We just saw their boot tracks, really.
0: <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. So I want to ask you about you guys recently posted a video about digging like a, a snow trench and that you had gone on a, on an overnight trip was, I, I want to ask you about that because is that something that you do like pretty frequently to make shelters like that? And for those that likely haven't seen the, the video, maybe you could explain what you did and like, yeah. why, why do a trip like that, especially in the yeah. winter?
1: Yeah. So kind of backstory on it. Um, we just snowshoed into an area and then, um, we, we took a shovel and we dug a trench and I, and I kind of built mine pretty more of a narrow trench. And then I just took some, some dead branches off of trees, laid it over the top of the trench, put my tarp on those branches, and then I put snow back on top. And so that, that creates an insulation level above you. And then you've kind of got the access um, just into the trench itself. And so that's, that's the shelter we're making. And my, my second answer to that is that's not something that we're doing all the time. Um, It's probably something (laughs) that I enjoy doing, um, you know, once or twice a year. But really, like if you were looking at it from a practicality standpoint, um, you'd probably want to do that if you can spend more than one night in that shelter. So if you're going and staying somewhere or like you go there, you stay one night there and then you summit a peak or something and then you come back to that shelter just because it is kind of a time commitment. Like If you were pretty practiced at it, you could probably build it from from you know start to finish in let's say an hour. Um, but mm-hmm. there's there's energy, there's, there's kind of some sweat equity that gets built into it, but really it's, it's a, it's a ton of fun. If you ever found yourself in that situation, um, it's a, it's a great, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's it's a great skill to have as well. But if I was doing something where I was moving constantly, um, I would, I, I would probably still hedge towards trying to stay on top of the snow with, with the shelter, um, you know, some kind of a tent or, or system like that, but you definitely get a lot more warmth in there and, and things like that. It's just, it's just more of a time commitment, but if you've never done it, I mean, definitely do it. It's a lot of fun. I've, I've done the same thing, um, with a hammock too, like trenching it out and essentially hanging a hammock through that trench. Um, and that was a lot of fun too, but it's, it's just all about, I think having fun. I think in the winter, what's, what's really cool about that is, um, that actually the location we were at for that was not very far off of, um, a road, but that road is closed in the winter. So Um, while I can drive past that campsite any day in the summer, backpacking in there in the winter, it was a totally different experience. And I mean, it's so quiet. Like you'd have no idea that, you know, a couple miles away is, is a, is a oiled road, but, and that you're off of a dirt road that's closed in the winter. I mean, it's just, just one of those things where like, when you go out there and you experience the winter season, everything is, is a lot more different than you'd think. Like it's that location is completely different in the winter than in the summer.
0: Yeah. I love that perspective because you don't really have to go very far to experience that area differently than if visiting it in the summer, you just walk right past it because you're Mm -hmm. trying to put big miles in or whatever it is. And I did that on a a recent trip in the Uinta mountains where we only went like a mile and a half in. And normally on that trail, you would not even consider going that far because there's cows everywhere. And, but it was, Fresh snowfall' super beautiful, and yeah, I love that perspective,
1: yeah, totally it's it's a lot of fun when you start opening up those winter months for sure, just
2: and I, I think winter backpacking too you you know hone in a lot of skills and and things that you might normally take for granted, like such as everything being frozen, you know you're, you're
0: taking care of your gear better. yeah
2: like it, it just
0: frozen boots,
2: <laughs> yeah, like frozen water. Food, cliff bars, like just everything being Brigham, frozen.
1: Brigham literally put his cliff bar in his mug and put it next to the fire because he didn't want to eat a frozen <laughs>
0: cliff bar. Yeah. I
2: mean, <laughs> just just a different skill set.
0: That's awesome. Well, for everyone listening, I would absolutely recommend going and watching that video on the, the Outdoor Battles uh YouTube channel because Tayson does a good job of like showing how that shelter comes together and the benefits of it. So I enjoyed watching it. So definitely go check it out. Well, so now I want to just kind of move on into this realm of the company that you guys uh, started and you work for and just get some like background and kind of go through various different topics about uh, things around outdoor vitals. But I'm, I'm intrigued on like, anytime I see somebody launch a new company and why people start a new company, like why, why start outdoor vitals?
1: I'll kind of cover this in two segments. Um, When I first started the company, we kind of made the motto, um, opening the outdoors. And then from there, now, if you were like, look at the website, it's, it's live ultralight, but really that, that opening the outdoors has a huge impact on really what I was trying to do. And I touched on this a little bit in my intro, but I grew up, um, in the outdoors a lot, but to me, rain gear was a trash bag and, you know, a, a, a cold weather <laughs> piece of gear was like cotton thermals and, sure. and, um, just whatever, like whatever jacket, you know, you might be able to find it, just whatever discount Key Mart, Walmart store was there. And, and so I, well, I, I absolutely will tell you to go outdoors, even if that's the gear you have. Um, what I found personally is that as when I, when I started to get into um, obtaining some nicer higher end gear, um, man, it was just such this, this perception change of like, wow, like the outdoors, like I, somehow I still love the outdoors, even though like I suffered in the outdoors quite often. And um, so when I kind of got into some more higher end gear and understanding, let's say a layering system or, you know, to stay away from cotton or, or, you know, just some of those principles. And then also just the gear itself. Um, it just totally changed it for me. And I'm like, man, if people had gear like this, they would spend more time outdoors. And I feel like as a society, that's really what we need is more time disconnected. Um, you know, me included, I I can still get sucked into things, but so I, I really just have this passion about getting people outdoors. I know that like, in order for us to preserve the outdoors, um, it takes people loving the outdoors and going outdoors more often and then being conscious of it and so on and so forth. So I wanted to help more people get outdoors, but when they did so, be able to have good experiences so that they'd want to repeat it. You know, one of the, one of the biggest things we, we might sh- see you at a show next week. And one of the biggest things I hear there that just makes me want to, want to scream is like, um, I might see like a couple and the guy's looking at a sleeping bag and, and we're talking through him and we figure out what bag he needs. And then, um, I turn to his wife or, you know, and I'm like, Hey, what, what do you need? Like what, what bag do you need or, or what's your situation? And, and, you know, they say something like, you know, I'm never going to go backpacking or I'm never going to go camping because he took right. me one time and I froze and it was the worst experience of my life. And you'll never see me yeah. again. Yeah, yeah, and, and that kills me because, you know, with, with a little bit of education and, and maybe better gear, um, it could have changed her perception on the outdoors forever and been totally different. And I mean, I've had this happen, I mean, one time I was down in Cancun on a tour bus, you know, and, and someone told me that exact story. I just hear this story all the time. And so that's a big, big driver to me. And so a part of that though, so that's like the why, but, but, but what I wanted to do is I wanted to do it all direct to consumer so that, yeah, that gear has been around forever, but like, I didn't own it growing up because, you know, my parents weren't going to spend a couple hundred dollars on this jacket that, um, when they could get one for $40 here or, you know, things like that. And so um, really, when I did it direct to consumer, that was that was a huge purpose of it is to cut out as much of the of the extra excess markups as possible and get gear into people's hands um, at a more reasonable price and hopefully opening up the opportunity for more people to get that gear in their hands. So um, I guess going on to that, like we did, we we stayed focused on that for a long time and um, it was it was the right thing for us to do at that time because my background, you know, wasn't in product design; it wasn't in um, you know outdoor tourism or whatever it might be it was um, I had a finance degree I definitely have that entrepreneurship bug in me um, and then my passion was was being outdoors but I also didn't even have that historical knowledge of growing up with good gear so um, a lot of what happened is we went in and we built the best gear that that we knew how at that point in time and then we focused on the price like the price is what sold it it was we were opening the outdoors because of the price and 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 so on and so forth and and as i got farther down that road um we started to to develop better gear and we brought on designers and um our, our relationships with manufacturers like high high-end manufacturers started to develop and um the gear that we wanted to make was was getting better and better um but <clears throat> but while like like so we wanted to develop better gear and and uh like while we still want to help people get outdoors all the time um what happened is because we had sold things on the price point, like game all the time, we got lumped into, Hey, these guys are the budget guys. These guys are the, Mm. this, you know, these guys are the price point guys. And that's, that's never where I wanted to be um, long-term. That was just kind of what got us off the ground, right? Like that's what people cared about when I first started. And so learning mistake as an owner was, we definitely way overemphasized, Hey, we're cheaper than this bag at, at REI. Um, and so to shift from that, we, we just, we did a lot of things. Like I said, we brought on a designer we started increasing the quality of the gear and it really became more about, Hey, we want to help you get outdoors, but one step further, we want to help you do it in an ultralight way, a minimalist way, because we're so confident that when you learn, you don't need three pairs of pants in your backpack or, you know, <laughs> you don't right. need, you know, your carry on luggage when you're going international and to carry on and to pay for another check bag. Like when you learn those things, It's like the world just opens up to you and, and, um, you know, travel seems way easier. Backpacking seems way easier and you can be comfortable without, you know, packing a 50 pound pack. And, and so we just really believe so much on, on that ultralight way and being a little bit more minimalist, um, but still helping people to get outdoors. And so we just got a little bit more niche specific of, Hey, we're here to help you, um, live outdoors and I mean, go outdoors and and be comfortable. But we also believe that, you know, by doing it in a more ultralight minimalist way, it's a better, it's a better system. Um, You know, there's less waste on the environment, but there's also maybe less for you to have to own. There's less barriers. Uh, Maybe you can use your gear on a daily basis. So the cost of the gear doesn't seem so high. If it's, if you're only using it once or twice a year, you know, that then the cost of it seems higher than if you can use it every day. And so we just started to shift the mindset there. And, and that's where we're at now is just trying to focus on, on living ultralight every day.
2: Yeah. And I, I think that's like a misperception about us, with the live ultralight motto and things like that. Like we have people that email in or comments, I, I like to call them like the, the gram weenies and, and they're, you know, critiquing the weights on some of our things, but that's not necessarily what our live ultralight meaning is. It's like, I come to work with the same pants on that I go to dinner, I hike, you know, same thing with a shirt, you know, one shirt for, multiple uses and our, our, you know, mummy pod or different things that we're, we're designing and, and moving forward, what we're trying to do is not a ton of just stuff, just multi-function. You know, I, I love the travel. So what, what shirt, what pants, what pair of shoes can I use the most? And, you know, what are, it's going to hold up if it's wool or whatever it might be. Um, so I think that's more of the live ultralight where we're, we're at, and where we're moving in that direction. It's not necessarily the weight of like the we're, gear. We're
1: never going to be the absolute lightest option on on any product. Would be my guess.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's the mindset of of that live ultralight. Yeah, we want to create the best lightest gear that people can afford. Like that that that's ideal, but. That's not necessarily what live ultralight means,
0: right? You're almost taking the approach of a minimalist mindset, as opposed to you want to be the the lightest and like I don't exactly.
2: Even... We're trying to mesh that minimalist mindset, the live ultralight, and put them together, and that's kind of where we're at.
0: Yeah, you're not trying to take the approach of maybe some of these other brands that that is their sole focus is how do we reduce every single gram possible on these pieces of gear and create ultra light backpackers. You're taking that. that
2: We're trying to create the lightest gear that we can and still make it accessible to the masses.
0: Nice. Well, so you touched on a, sorry,
1: go ahead. I was, and we, we may get to this, but there's some, there's some design examples I can give as we go on of some products where we kind of pick the price, the, the weight, and then we focus more on, What can we give someone for that weight level?
0: You touched on the, like the budget aspect and the perception of, um, like you're the budget brand and that kind of thing. And I just wanted to share my, my perspective that that is something that, uh, initially when I had been looking at the brand, probably, I don't know, four or five years ago and saw how much like push there was on Amazon from an outside perspective, Is somebody that spends a lot of time looking at different gear items and testing gear items and all of that, uh, with my YouTube channel and stuff, it is cool to see that like a pretty significant shift has like visibly been presented to the consumer on, on that end.
1: I I definitely appreciate that. We've, we've worked really, really hard to make that happen. And and like I say, like when I got into this, um, it's kind of been like, when you're climbing up a mountain and there's just kind of fog, it's like the higher you climb, the more you can see. But in the beginning, maybe you just couldn't see much. And so, really, when I started it out, um, you know, I was doing the best that I could. And, and we've always, always offered great products at the price points that they were at. But you will see, like, some of our price points have started to increase a little bit from where they were. Still, still phenomenal for direct to consumers aspect. But like, um, yeah, we've we've really definitely focused and put a lot more energy and effort into the product. Um, you know, we've 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 been redesigning a lot of things, which you're seeing. And Mm -hmm. no, Amazon doesn't like that. When we raise a price point on Amazon, we know 100% that our Amazon sales will suffer. And (laughs) we're making that conscious choice.
0: You brought up direct to consumer. For those that don't understand what direct to consumer means, I mean, you touched on it a little bit, but if you could give like the direct to consumer for dummies uh, Mm -hmm. explanation and why you have chosen that to be like the business model as opposed to reaching out to to dealers and having retailers carry your product and just have more reach that way.
1: Yeah, for sure. So, um, just to kind of go off of a, a, a decent example, just using round numbers, let's say, um, so typically how an item is made and then sold into the marketplace is, um, a brand will come up with a design and then they'll, they'll, they'll manufacture it, um, whatever manufacturing facility they're doing so that's kind of a misperception right there sometimes that people have like patagonia doesn't own any factories you know they 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 contract factories to make things for them and so right. it'll come out of that factory let's say at fifty dollars for this jacket and then patagonia's got to make their money on it so they're gonna they're gonna take it and say okay now we're gonna we're gonna take it mark it up to hundred dollars and we're gonna go talk to rei and we're gonna go talk to backcountry.com and we're gonna go talk to these retailers And then we're going to sell um, that product to these retailers for hundred dollars. And then when REI gets that piece, they've got to make their money to open their doors and pay their employees and all that. So then they take it and they mark it up to $200. And usually it's a little bit, you know, it's kind of like, that's the suggested manufacturer price is $200, right? And so what you're seeing is you're seeing, let's say a $50 jacket to produce is now getting sold at a $200 price point. Um, When you do it direct to consumer though, we, we don't use any retailers. And so We'll take it from the factory and, and buy it for the 50 bucks. And then we'll take it and sell it for about that $100 price point. Sometimes it's slightly more or not with, you know, let's say it's 105. We had $5 for the shipping, but that's that's really it. And so typically most consumers are saving 40 to 50% of the overall purchase price of what something would be at a retailer store by buying it directly online. And so that that's that's direct to consumer in a nutshell.
0: What are like some of the biggest pros and even cons of a direct-to-consumer model?
1: Yeah, I'd, I'd say the, the pros um, would be more that we can, like, like manufacturing facilities love to work with us because when we come in, we aren't actually manufacturing for a price point. We're saying we want to make the best this, 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 and I don't have to go sell this to REI and hit this price point for their shelf that they've already figured out you know we want this price point and so we can design a lot more free and then we can also design things and release them kind of however we want so we don't have to pick out seasons a lot of these other companies because you know you've got to, the the bigger the companies and the more you get down the line and more things are planned they they have to design in seasons so people that are like we were just at the outdoor retailer show last last week i think and and uh you know these guys are mapping out their winter stuff for 2 years down the line whereas right. we map out our okay. winter stuff for next year. And so the, the innovation level that can happen is, is so much faster. That loop is so much more closed because, um, we can, we can just release it at any time. We don't have to plan when we're going to put it on this shelf and, and then sell that contract X amount of months in advance and, and so on and so forth. So I think it really helps with, um, that aspect. We also get a lot of transparency and feedback from customers. Um, Hmm. if you take something back to, to a retail store, that retail store doesn't necessarily, um, relay that information to the brand. And so with us, though, any return that you return comes straight to us and we know exactly why that was returned and we can take that information and, and move forward and use that. I'd say, I mean, if we're moving on to some of the cons, though, um, definitely one of the big ones is like, as we've kind of now released a little bit of apparel would be something like, you know, some people just want to see it in their hands and feel it and put it on and see what the fit's like. And some of those things gotcha. um, direct to consumer company. You're going to have to, you know, purchase and return that gear if you don't like it, you know, just to get right. your hands on it. So there's a little bit more threshold there. Um, one thing that we see that's kind of a misconception, too, would be like discounts. So you'll see these companies doing like massive discounts. Oh, it's 40% off today or, or you know, something like that. And we, there's no way we can do that. You know, going back to that model, if we mark something <laughs> right. down 40%, we would be upside down after, you know, taxes and and anything, you know? So, so like a discount, a big discount for us is like 10, 15%. Um, but really you'd almost need to times that by two to be more realistic of what the retail companies are are doing. So that's kind of a misperception and a con for people. Um, and then the other thing, the biggest thing is we could, we could grow faster. If we were a retail company, you can go in, you can get, you know, purchase orders. I can go finance purchase orders, you know, get loan money, whatever it is and, and, you know, if you get one deal with a, with a big retailer, that can be millions of dollars. And so, right, right um, they can just simply grow faster. And that's, that's the big appeal. I've had personal friends that have, you know, gone retail with, with like in the health space and stuff. And, you know, it went from me always kind of being able to turn and coach him on, on growth and development, um, because we were so much farther ahead revenue wise to like within one year, he like Five x my revenue, <laughs> you know, like just from one retail <laughs> contract.
2: And I would <laughs> say, who is like inventory wise planning for? You yeah, know, we have a new product or something. We don't know how fast it's gonna sell, or if something doesn't sell. Like, so that that would be another con, I would say. But on the flip side of it, we can change things on on the fly if you know we get feedback on something, or we want to design something new we can do it fairly quickly.
0: So even, even though you've got product being manufactured in factories overseas, some of those like cons and situations are shared with kind of like the cottage industry where consumers want to be able to try on a frameless backpack or a fancy quilt or whatever piece of gear it is. And they don't have a place to be able to go check it out or Wonder why they're not ever having big sales on things. <laughs> so that's yeah. that's a unique that's a unique perspective. I appreciate you sharing that. So, Taysen, you had earlier mentioned about you're, that you're not a product designer, and uh, from what I understand, you guys have since hired somebody that has product uh, design experience. But I'm curious where five six years ago, where your first designs came from, and then how have they changed from how those were acquired, whatever that process was, to what you're producing now?
1: At a basic level, when I first started designing product, it was very focused on my own use and function of products. You know, I would, to be quite frank, I mean, I would go out and buy what I thought was the best product in the market, and then I would use it and just start critiquing it and say, you know, what would I, what would I do different? And, and, I'd, and I'd do a lot of tweaks and, and changes and alterations and things like that. Um, and that's kind of where it started. And, and I like, I'm not a designer, so I, I didn't know how to use Photoshop. So I was using a lot of Photoshop and writing, you know, basically big paragraphs of information and then like pointing and calling out features, or sometimes I'd like cut something and and flip it around here and put it there. And, and that's kind of how the design process was working. Um, and then the farther we got into it, the more, um, time and energy I, I started putting into the design process. And so, We started to, to really look at things more problem-based. What can we really solve for, for a customer? Could we, you know, like, let's say you look at like our airy sleeping bag, Um, you know, like I've got this rectangular sleeping bag and I was, you know, testing out the concept of selling that. And then I was like, I could put that on the bottom of a hammock. And, and so we put (laughs) that on the bottom of a hammock and then, you know, just things started to go from there. And so a lot of like, all of my inspiration just comes from using the gear a lot. I, I try to use the gear as much as I can, but I'm very conscious, like, As much as I love backpacking and going out there and doing it, um, and I'm so blessed that I get to do that as work, um, it is like, I'm I'm always conscious of it. Like I'm always critiquing. I'm always analyzing. I'm always, if I see someone on the trail that has something that I'm interested in, I'm asking them, Hey, what do you think about this product? Hey, I saw you were running this Cuban fiber tent. Like, what, what do you feel about this? What, you know, I'm just kind of always living in that mindset. And so that's kind of how it was before. It's just, it's just purely like me and my ideas and feedback from customers was definitely implemented a lot. Um, but that's where that design started. And then as things went on, um, just my level of knowledge just really increased in the space. Um, as I started to study fabrics and as I started to study different, you know, supply chains and more companies and and things like that, um, I started to get really conscious of a lot more things. And, and so then the designs kind of up leveled a little bit from there. And then um, from there, it kind of got to the point where it's like, I just can't, I, I'm so spread thin, like we need to bring on a designer. And um, very fortunately for us, we we have a, a program that just started in in our backyard here in Utah, in, in Logan, that's a phenomenal program. And then I went up and um, you know met met some students there and whatnot. And, and there's a student there that was, um, he built this backpack. And for those of you that have never designed anything, a backpack is one of the most complex things to design. There's just I mean, really, if you tear a backpack down, sometimes there's hundreds of pieces that go into a backpack and he had sewn together (laughs) this backpack. It was um, basically an imitation of like a $600 backpack that I owned. And I was like, this is phenomenal work. And so I'm like, Hey, let me take you out to dinner. And we got started from there. And, um, ever since then, just what we're able to do, which is going to be a lot of what you see coming out this year has just been next level. And we've, We've, we've definitely changed the design process. So much of the design now is a team effort. Like we sit down and we say, Hey, we want to design a new ultralight backpack. What features do you guys want? What features do you not want? And really it's become so much more of a team thing than, than Taysen, you know, being a solo team and, and just Mm. constantly analyzing my own gear. And, And that's been a real benefit of just having the team grow.
2: And I think too, with building relationships with different factories and things like that, you get to learn about new technology and what works for them what what doesn't work maybe you could speak on like loft tech and how you came across that and you know it's i think it is like a team effort not only with the outdoor vitals team but but with the manufacturers and and the textile companies and things like that and that goes back to being direct to consumer and hey this is a brand new technology we can be the first ones to try it
1: yeah. Yeah. That's, that's been a huge part. Um, the, and again, it's like, it's like those stages, right? Like we did kind of start on Amazon and we did always want to grow off of Amazon and grow to this <laughs> elite level and stuff. And, and it's so fun now at the level that we're at that the team has expanded because now, um, you know, I travel, I was just in, in Vietnam, um, in December and I was just at the oh, OR show awesome. and a meeting with suppliers and, and walking factories. And, and what's amazing is, is because of the level we're at now, we're able to get in with, with some elite, elite, elite level um, manufacturers, fabric suppliers. Um, In fact, we have some wool products that are going to be coming out um, on a Kickstarter campaign in a month in in March. And that particular wool supplier has said no to working with the biggest outdoor um, retail company in the world. They've just said no, because they have a vision for where they can apply this wool and this fabric. And that's elite levels they don't want it to be a commodity and stuff and so Hmm. very fortunately for us you know we were able to get in and, and work with them and i feel super blessed with that but the cool thing about that is these guys are innovating and releasing stuff all the time and now we get to take part in some of that and we get to have direct feedback for them on maybe future designs and um so that's also just been a huge change from you know the beginning it was like we took whatever we could get and now it's like we get to be selective and we get to Kind of sell our way into some of these factories and and kind of pitch the future, and then they they end up kind of more or less betting on us that we're going to be the future, and that's been a lot of a lot of fun and, and totally changed the way we we look at design.
0: Yeah, that uh, that perspective is so interesting, and I've got a lot of like a few things going through my head that you said that are really like interesting to me because I've had my eyes opened quite a bit to the amount of like just fabrics. If you just talk about fabrics in general, <laughs> everybody yeah. thinks, well, you've got silk, poly, you've got silk nylon, you've got Dyneema fabric, you've got X pack and there's maybe only five or six other fabrics. And it's like, no, there are thousands and thousands of fabric textile products that could be applied to any type of application. It just needs to fit what you're trying to accomplish. And like there, it, it's it's just amazing to me how much innovation is happening within the textile industry alone. And I can only imagine how much more as Outdoor Vitals has grown that you've had access to. Like you said, with this uh, wool provider, this wool textile that you now have... When you first started, you didn't have access to. And now you have all of these like kind of endless possibilities for that cliche phrase, but that's... It, It's almost overwhelming. And that's, that's like a big part of Outdoor Vitals
1: is, you know, we have a YouTube channel and, and, and we have a podcast and really like when it boils down to it, my number one goal for those, both of those platforms is to educate. Um, because it's, it's insanely overwhelming to, to know how many fabrics there are out there and the different properties of each fabric and right. And this and that. And so that's really what like our job as a company, but, but we do want to educate people because you know, you can take, you can look at it two ways. You could take someone, you could put them in Walmart. Like I could take you Devin and I could put you in Walmart and you could find some gear that will absolutely work. And you could have a very enjoyable backpacking experience. Yeah. I could yeah, take someone sure. who doesn't have any of that knowledge, put them in Patagonia store with, with, or I don't know, that's bad in whatever store and, and give them an infinite budget. And they could have a worse experience than you on the trail because <laughs> gear is only half of the equation. And so, yeah, like when you're talking fabrics and textiles, I mean, it gets overwhelming and it gets super exciting at the same time. That's what I get to geek out about with with our designers and our team. Um, but, yeah, there are there are and, en- you know, endless possibilities and opportunities. And and sometimes, you know, like with us, like there's been times where literally it's like you feel like you're drawing a straight line from point A to point B. And you're like, how has no one else done this? And, and at those times, usually like I have warning signs going up, like, OK, really dig into this, make sure. But sometimes it's just a matter of when you know what this fabric can do and, and, and all of its properties, like it's as clear as day what that f- fabric should be used in. Right. And, um, but the problem is not everyone knows what that fabric is. Not everyone knows what that textile is capable of. It's pros and it's cons and, and stuff. So, so much of design too, is just just knowing as much as you possibly can to make those connections.
0: And knowing how to educate the consumer on what the use of that product is, is is for.
1: And I need to add right here, that is probably my single favorite part about being a direct to consumer business is I get to tell the story of this product awesome. to, directly to our customers. It's not a retail store selling um, whatever XYZ product and saying, yeah, this is the pros, this is you know, whatever. It's me saying like, this is the story. Like, look, we, you know, we from the wool level, you know, we go here, we got this patented wool that has a super technology. And then we put that into this piece and then that piece got put into this. And then we manufactured it here. You know, it's like, it's this whole story and we get to do that education (laughs) process. And that's super exciting to me because like, not only are customers buying a better product, but they're, they're getting the story behind it and like the why. And, and, and then also like the why we're doing it and someone else might not be able to, to do that. Um, so it's, it's so fun to be able to tell that backstory and educate because that's, it's valuable to a consumer.
0: Yeah. So I want to get into that why a little bit more. And this is going to be, I feel like kind of a, could be a potentially rabbit hole conversation, but uh, we'll try to navigate it (laughs) the best we can. But the, the whole mindset of what you see in forums or Facebook groups, or just uh, people in general talking about that gear from China is garbage or gear from overseas is garbage and you should buy US made product and you should only buy from cottage companies or whatever whatever it is, but it's that mindset of like gear that comes from overseas for backpacking is not good gear. And it's an argument that I personally disagree with, but I'm I'm curious from I'll, your I'll take it on for you <laughs> From your perspective, because I'm pretty sure you've got like some really good insight and as you've walked factories, which I'm curious what that's like for you, that process, mm-hmm. um, but shed some light on like choosing a factory uh, and knowing the, the product coming out of that factory is going to be a quality piece of product, how factories uh, differ from others. Just give us some education on how gear that comes from overseas can be really high quality stuff.
1: Yeah, no, that's, that's a great question, I'm, and I'm glad you've brought it up. And not a lot of people like want to approach this the way that I'm going to approach this. But um, I guess for starters, um, I've had experiences where I've bought, I bought two backpacks almost at the same time. I was just really interested in, in the design and, and this type of backpack. And so I bought one that was manufactured in the USA, and I bought one that was manufactured in Vietnam. And as I got those and I just analyzed them, again, kind of with those designer lens eyes on, And I looked at the stitch marks and I looked at the way things bled into seams. And I looked at the way the lines were. Um, it was, it was clear that the one that was made in Vietnam was of higher build quality, just, just abundantly clear. And I was just so impressed with it. And so the lesson to be learned there is, um, the fact the quality level is specific to the factory. Um, it's 100% specific to the factory. You could make something in the USA that would be higher quality than something in China. You could make something in China that will be absolutely higher quality than something in the USA. It's all dependent on the manufacturing facility, their processes, their time in business, a lot of times their their you know the 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 age the, the, of the sewers, how long have they been sewing? How many years experience do they have sewing or, or um, you know what how many checkpoints, how many quality control checkpoints are built into that factory's processes and and there's, there's, there's all these different things, but it's very, very factory specific. So that being said, um, that kind of like, like when you talk pure quality, it really doesn't have much of a bearing as far as like it's building the USA. So it's higher quality that, that just isn't the fact anymore. Um, and, and I, that's something you might have to experience yourself as far as why we might choose to work with factories overseas and, and then how we locate them. Um, so I, I served, um, volunteer work time in Malaysia and that was actually a big motivation for starting this business as I came back from there thinking one there's so many opportunities to connect um, internationally and, and you know basically bring product from here or there and and I wanted to do that but I wanted to do that too because I got to spend a lot of time with with the poor working class of Malaysia and you know for these guys to even have a job that was like five days a week instead of seven, would change their lives forever or a stable job. Like sometimes they'll go sit on the corner, wait for someone to pick them up for work. Um, and that day their boss is just like, eh, we're not pouring concrete today. So they just sit there for a couple hours and they go home and they're like, yeah, I guess I don't work today and I don't get paid today, you know? And, and that, I mean, that they just don't have any stability in, in any of that. And so for them to have a stable job is literally life-changing. It's absolutely life-changing for them. And um, kind of flip that on the other side, I had a, a friend who started a manufacturing facility here in our, in my hometown and he was manufacturing leather goods. And it was a constant battle for him to run that facility. In fact, he, to this day will attribute that to being the, the number one mistake that he ever made was trying to manufacture it himself because no <laughs> one wanted to work. Like no one wanted to come and work for him, you know, the, and then they'd work for a while and they, they were always, you know, we need to get paid this and and we need better this and, you know, and, and like, not that that's a bad thing. Like, I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but it was more of sure. the fact that like, um, it's like a manual job. And no one really wants a manual job in the United States anymore. It's like they've progressed above that, which is totally fine because we have access to an education. But what I love about being able to go back to some of these countries is you see the progress. So um, we're actually like most of the factories that we're working with right now are actually moving out of China. Most like a lot of our gear going forward is going to be manufactured outside of China um, because China's gone through an industrial revolution. And and in one one life cycle almost, um, one working life cycle, people were able to go to these factories get stable jobs and then from those stable jobs now their kids could actually go to school and gain an education. And so if you ever get the opportunity to to visit a place like China, you will see that that when you walk a factory, everyone in that factory is older. And if they're younger, they're working in the office portion of the factory, right? Gotcha. And then you go to like your hotel, young people. You go to the airport, young people. You go to, the, you know, all these different places because they had the luxury, the opportunity to go and get an education. And in one and in one life cycle, um, it, it, changed China forever. And now that's really the opportunity that we have going into, let's say Vietnam or Bangladesh, or we've even got one factory that's, that's been working hard to open in Ethiopia. Not that we're in that or, or plan to do that, but like, I've talked to them multiple times about what that's like, you know, like, and, and it, it absolutely fundamentally changes those countries forever. And so while I do, I have nothing against us manufacturing, um, I love that I do have the opportunity to better some of these third world countries because it will change their lives forever by having one stable job.
0: And it's I think what I'm hearing from you as well as if you use the analogy of like the restaurant business for example, <laughs> you choose to to go to to one restaurant, the food quality is going to be uh subpar maybe whatever like fast food restaurant and then you go eat at like a, a fancy restaurant that has expensive food i mean that's what we're talking about here is it's not like the whole country is this factory and that's every absolutely <laughs> I, and i think that that's you look really... at every you look at every fabric supplier every fabric
1: supplier has a mill in asia they might have a mill in the usa too but like you look at at Uh, Not to say, like, all the names, but, like, I mean, you look at a Cordura, a Pertex, uh, you know, any of these guys, they're making it in China, too. So why is China getting the bad rep, you know, like, because they can make it anywhere. It's just the quality. It's just
2: not true, I feel like. It's just, (laughs) you know, like, the stigma that stuff made in the U.S. is better than stuff made in Asia is just not true. Like, look at the, you know, the Patagonias, the Mountain Hardwares, the ORs. Like, they're some of the biggest names in the game they're not with some so. of the
1: highest quality exactly. in the game.
2: Exactly. Like they have, you know, ironclad guarantees on all their gear and they're you know, they're they're not made in the US.
0: Yeah, and that's not to say that I mean you're talking about a factory that's uh, basically a private business, right? Yeah. And <laughs> one of the things that was really interesting to to me and it's funny to we're kind of like broadening this. This is the rabbit hole portion of the conversation, (laughs) (laughs) but I I ran into somebody uh, that they're a tent manufacturer. Well, they sell and design tents. They don't manufacture the tents. But what I learned from talking to the product designer of that company is that their tents are produced in the exact same factory as six other tent brands that are mainstream popular tent brands. And it's funny for me to have that perspective now to like, okay, I'm not going to say names, but, uh, company ABCD and E are all coming out of the same factory, but because of different uh, styles of marketing, different, uh, approaches to, uh, the consumer market that they like the, the market that they're trying to direct to the conversations that happen around that of people are like, Oh, well, that's a, that's a piece of garbage. Like, I don't want to buy that because it's not this product. And it's like the same factory has made all of those products for those companies. Correct. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Like that.
0: It's a huge, it's a huge um, wall to break
1: down. And it's also harder for a direct to consumer company because the number one contributor to the quality of something is the price. So, so like we also manufacture, like honestly one of the biggest checks for me going into any manufacturer at this point is who do you manufacture for that I can look at their products and check quality on. Oh, you manufacture for the North face. You manufacture this specific jacket. Now I can look at that, see that quality Mm -hmm. like off of a production run, not just a sample. And I can, you know, and, and that's a huge like we won't move into factories where they don't have a, a reputation from other companies that they're manufacturing for. Absolutely. Like we don't in the beginning, I mean, I didn't have that luxury, but now I definitely do. And that's a huge contributing factor to it.
0: Which, I mean, is going to say a lot down down the line. This is just my opinion. But as you're able to continue to to move into factories that are producing just have higher quality products coming out of them because of who's working for the company, the, the quality of, and the the reputation of your brand is just going to increase in a, in a more positive manner.
1: Yep. And that's, that's definitely our goal is to, is to earn that, just keep working towards awesome. that constantly until, um, you know, we've, we've earned that respect that we, that we want from it. So.
0: So moving on, what, uh, what's each of, of your, I know you're not like product designers by trade, but what have been your personal favorite products of all of the Outdoor Bottles products to release to the consumers?
2: Um, for me, it's probably the quilts, all the like the 10D fabric stuff. Uh, that's just, I feel, took us over the top and really in the direction that we want to go. And that was kind of the first product line that did that with just the lighter lighter higher end uh materials and i'm super excited about the new wool which we'll get to in a couple yeah. months from now <laughs> so yeah it's awesome. quilts, top, uh, i like the top quilts down quilts under quilts i mean um so just those those are probably my favorite as of now
1: yeah for for me i would say it's it's been the loft tech jacket um you know, I've, I was always super, super interested in, in down alternatives and I've constantly been interested in those down alternatives and what we could do. And so to me, to be able to um, bring just that level of, of a down alternative to the market um, and go through that whole process of, you know, finding, finding the insulation, testing it, going through that with, you know, with the company as, as they were going through it, you know, we're, we're looking at the same, Fill power test reports from the IDFL at the same time, and, and then you know going through the fabric sourcing, and then and then putting it all together, um, and then and then obviously being able to launch it and get the traction and success we had on it, um, that was definitely just just a rewarding and very fun experience design wise for me um, was was that loft tech jacket.
2: And, and- I think too with new relationships with um, different textile companies and stuff like that. So taking that loft tech. Insulation and being able to put it in, in new materials and, and tweak it and stuff. I think the the apparel and jackets in particular are only going up. You know,
0: right, right. Are you continuing to work on like additional apparel items? yet yes. Now that you've because the loft tech was like a big Kickstarter campaign that you ran, right? Correct. Mm-hmm. And so, like, what other apparel items we don't have to go too much in detail on this but what other apparel items are you working on
1: in march we'll be releasing another kickstarter second kickstarter Um, and on that kickstarter there's going to be pants and basically a pant layering system with with some wool thermals and, and whatnot and so that's that's like we we don't want to release too much information about that just to not like sell everything out too soon before we get to actually how <laughs> sure. no, we'll much it. that that we've got like that's in the works and then we've also got um some things we're adding on to that so it's not just gonna be pants but there's gonna be um some things we're kind of tacking onto that same release which is um a wool hoodie which is um like taking that same pant and the pant fabric that's super super amazing and, and then putting that into a short um so we're we're expanding in all those ways but but the nice thing is um Oh, also in March, we'll be releasing a newer version of our down jacket, which went through quite a, quite a few changes. Um, but yeah, we definitely have a lot of apparel like in the works, but also like we've opened up these new gateways for more apparel to come. So, you know, who knows, who knows what'll be coming down the pipeline for us. Maybe we'll, you know, be expanding in, in more wools. Maybe we'll look at different wool, wool options for, for our customers. Maybe it'll be, um, you know, just, just adding, adding these different pieces that maybe aren't a part of that, but um yeah there's there's a lot I would say in the apparel side that we're definitely jazzed for and don't get us wrong we're not like we're not like we got really started in kind of focusing on the big 3 um and we're we're actively going backwards and redesigning and going through and cleaning up anything on the old designs and hmm. and and then we're releasing new designs So this year you know we're hoping to have um we'll, we'll we'll have a new backpack out but we'll also probably have a a different type of shelter that's that's a lighter weight shelter a more ultralight shelter and and so we're we're actively kind of going through different parts of the business but the apparel side is is a lot of fun and there's a lot of i think things that you'll see coming in the next um this year and then into the next years
0: that's awesome well i was going to say that i had had like previous experience with your your summit sleeping bag and then recently picked up for this trip that i'm leaving on today uh the a 0 degree summit with the center zip which already and i Am excited about because it's a design that I have not personally used before. I've never had a center zip sleeping bag, and so I'm excited to like talk to you guys today and then be going to sleep in that product this weekend.
1: Yeah, no, I, I think you'll really enjoy the center zip. Um, we never the center zip actually came from the mummy pod. I just enjoyed the center zip so much on the mummy pod. Gotcha. I'm like, hey, let's let's polish this and then let's let's move forward with it because. You just never lose your zipper, which is like, (laughs) and it's so much easier to get in and out of the bag, but it has to be done in the right way. Like, so if you look at your baffling on that zipper, um, you'll notice that the, that a lot of zippers out there, um, basically the flap that, that insulates that zipper goes from like a, it's basically like a sew through design where it connects right behind the zipper. It has some insulation that it wraps in and tees right back into itself. And Mm -hmm. so you have to do some of these center zip designs where it's, it's a boxed. Um, baffle where you get the full insulation value and so it's like a horseshoe instead of like an oval I guess it would be or like a diamond
2: and I think that goes back to where the company is going to that summit that you have is the fourth generation of of summit now (laughs) you know and if you look at the first one that you know came out (laughs) five years ago six years ago it's so much different than that newer one just the insulation the materials the zippers everything the baffle design and that may not be something that people are really looking at but from that first generation to that fourth generation the the design and the materials are so different and that goes into the price point and things like that it's the same name but it's totally different
0: yeah yeah well i'm excited to use it it uh i, I need i need a warm not to sleep being winter <laughs> in utah <laughs> so hopefully it uh proves that it will keep me nice and warm and comfortable so i'm excited about it
1: yeah yeah i, I hope you have a good experience with it for sure We've, and i don't know like the hard part with this too is just that like innovation just like never rests like i've got yeah, five other ideas <laughs> and things that we might even still be polishing that i'm just like i'd love to share and talk about because it's it is so i get i get so excited about it it's so fun and uh whatnot but yeah i mean that that i think that is like the fourth generation summit now mm-hmm. <laughs> you know and we just constantly are, are trying to push those and and constantly get get to where we want to be but i don't know i don't know if that's a, i guess i say that but i don't feel like you're ever going to get there i guess is is really what i'm saying like it's yeah, just I a mean, never-ending you know, fun materials are thing, get better you
2: know? and installations are going to be different and even you know zippers might be different like the zipper on that is
1: yeah, we're working with YKK to try to get them to do uh, an anti-snag number three zipper. And uh, I just met with them at the OR show and they told me that the demand wasn't high enough. Mm. Like, they're not sure if it's high enough for it. And then I was like, well, how many are they going to do? And they're like, oh, we only think there's like 20,000 units a year. And they're like, that's just not high enough for us. I'm like,
0: oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of product. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, a company like that, they're they're looking at, millions and millions of products yeah yeah that's crazy well we'll have to uh we should wrap this up we're uh basically at the end of the questions that i have for you and taking an hour of your time but we'll have to have you back on the podcast at another time and we can dive into more of the like product specifics we didn't really talk about all of the the products that you have and why you chose those products and i'd be interested to have that conversation in a, in another podcast. If you, you know what we
1: need to do is we need to have you come down to the office and then go on a trip with us. And, um,
0: maybe we can record that podcast live or something that yes. Let's, uh, let's take that offline and let's make that happen.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've already started to try to plan out some, some hikes here locally and I just put one together yesterday that would be really cool. And so let's talk
0: right on. Well, um, is there anything else that you do want to share with listeners? Uh, just to wrap up, um, not so much. I, I think I,
1: I, if you're listening to this, obviously you're you're someone who's really interested in gear, and, and I just I would encourage you to keep learning. The more you can learn about gear, the more you can dial in your system and just have better experiences. You know, we try to do that with some of our platforms, um, whether it be YouTube or, or podcasts. But keep learning, and and uh, yeah, you're not. You're not going to be disappointed in, in time that you invest in, in studying this. And it's just going to make a trip so much better. So appreciate the time for for us to come on and maybe share some education, and hopefully um, everyone listening just just keeps learning.
0: Any last yeah. words, Dave?
2: I, I would just stay stay tuned for Outdoor Vitals 2.0. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Yeah.
0: Well, weird. thanks again, guys. Really, really appreciate your time, and hope you have an awesome day. Yeah. yeah appreciate it. Thank you. I really appreciate everything that Tayson and Dave shared in that interview, really great conversation. And I appreciate hearing things straight from the owner and can hear the passion that Tayson has for creating product that gets people into the outdoors. So if you haven't checked out Outdoor Vitals or used any of their gear, I definitely suggest considering them if you are in the market for a new sleeping bag, a new tent or other items that they may have available like sleeping pads, backpacks, apparel, etc. Again, thank you to Taysen and Dave for their time and hope that we can have them on again because I want to talk more about products with them and design of things and just how that kind of works and more of the direct consumer type of business model. And hopefully we can do that as a live in-person show like we talked about in that conversation. And I want to thank all of you for listening today. As always, if you are enjoying what you're hearing, I'd love if you share the podcast on Facebook or Instagram with all of your friends just to get the word out more about the Backpacking Experience podcast. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, I love if you took a minute to rate the podcast and write a written review. It definitely helps others find the podcast. And again, thank you to all of you. And thank you for listening today to the Backpacking Experience.